This teaching comes to you from the team at St. Mark's, Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. The first reading is from John chapter 5, verses 19 to 29. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and he will show him greater works than these, so that you will be astonished. Indeed, just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whomever he wishes. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all may honour the Son just as they honour the Father. Anyone who does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. Very truly, I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has, has eternal life and does not come under judgment, but has, has passed from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, the hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not be astonished at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and will come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Hear the word of the Lord. The second reading today is from Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. They make no sound in their throats. Those who make them are like them, so are all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. 
He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. May the Lord give you increase, both you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to human beings. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any that go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time on and forevermore. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Give us grace, O Lord, not only to hear your word with our ears, but also to receive it into our hearts and to show it forth in our lives for the glory of your great name. Amen. Please do be seated. Uh, great to see you, everyone. Um, you should have got on the way in the door in your handout one of these outlines, which is a bit of a summary um, of the sermon today. Uh, you can take notes on it or just follow along, whatever you'd like to do. But uh, I'll be speaking on that. And you'll notice that I've called this talk The Godness of God, which really is a way of saying this is our introduction to our series, as Tim said, about God, about understanding God. Now, I want to though today share with you two fundamental principles for being human and they are first of all you are not God no offense secondly if you want to know God look at Jesus so number one you are not God and it's just as well secondly if you want to know God look at Jesus well as I said, over uh, the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at God to speak about his existence, his identity, and his character. Well, now, that may not surprise you. After all, you're in a church. Uh, of course, we talk about God here. But even so, you might complain that the subject of God is infinitely abstract and complex. God, whoever he, she, or it is, dwells in some far pavilion, unknowable, mysterious, and unapproachable. Isn't this going to be a lot of what an English friend of mine calls vicar waffle? Aren't we better off simply talking about things from the human side, about the pressing ethical issues of our day? We're in the midst of an election. We've got a war-torn world. We've got a pandemic. We've got an environmental crisis. Wouldn't we be better off talking about those or hearing perhaps about our personal issues, about the sicknesses and financial difficulties and family difficulties that we all experience and how to grow as a person. This is what I would call the Wizard of Oz view of God. You remember the story of uh, the Wizard of Oz? Uh, you've got Dorothy, you've got the lion, uh, yeah, Toto the dog, right, thank you, uh, the tin man and the scarecrow. And they set off along the yellow brick road to the city of Oz in the hope that they're going to see the wizard because of the wonderful things that he does. And he's going to give them what they lack. Uh, home, the noive, or courage, as, he say, as the lion says, a brain and a heart. But of course, it turns out, you remember, when they get to Oz and they meet the wizard, the wizard turns out to be a strange little man who can't give them anything. Instead... Each of them finds the answer to their problems has been inside them all along. And so the message of the Wizard of Oz, if we take the wizard as a metaphor for God, is that you should stop looking up and you should start looking in and around. 
You should start, stop looking up to God for anything useful like meaning and significance and goodness and instead look inside yourself and around at your companions on the yellow brick road of life. Now, This is a common feeling even amongst many Christians. God may exist or not, but it makes not much tangible difference and we should just focus on being kind. I recently read an interview of... Uh, it was Monsignor Tony Doherty, um, who for many years was down here at uh, Rose Bay, the Roman Catholic Church, and it was an interview of him by the well-known atheist Peter Fitzsimmons, where Fitzsimmons was complain- complimenting Doherty. He said, you're, you're my kind of priest because you, when, I, when you preached at my father-in-law's funeral, you didn't mention God at all. In fact, you mentioned, you spoke about what makes a good human life. After all, isn't that what matters in the end? I'd like to challenge this for two reasons. First of all, Doherty and Fitzsimmons assume that God is really something like the Wizard of Oz, so distant that you can't really know anything about him, if he exists at all. But if you think about it, this is a very strong claim to make about ultimate reality. It only works if it is true that we can't know anything about God. And as we'll see, the Christian faith says that God has made himself known and that that makes a huge difference. Which then comes to my second challenge, which is this. How do we know what is good without God? If we say God is sort of far off and remote and not in contact with us at all, we should just get on with doing good. How is it that we know what, God, what, what the good thing to do is? Without God, you're just guessing what good looks like. Now, because of the impact of Judaism and Christianity on our culture, and because of the human conscience which God puts in us, even an atheist like Fitzsimmons will make guesses that are close to the mark. But you can see that there's division on even the question of what a good, what a good human life is growing in our culture as we become more and more post-Christian. Without God, the only measure of what is good is your own impulses and feelings as they are shaped by peer pressure. And so, you see, the God question really does matter. And it matters for us to know who we really are and what our lives are for. Who you are and what the meaning of your life is. That's, a pretty, that's pretty huge, right? If you really are a creature that is a created being, purposed and intended, not simply the product of a billion-year-long algorithm of genes, then it's a pretty important thing to know, I'd say, and to know who it is who created you. Since God is is more basic to our existence than even the earth upon which we walk and the air which fills our lungs, then we need to know who it is, this one on whom we depend for life itself. The poet Alexander Pope once said, Know thyself, presume not God to scan. The proper study of mankind is man. He was precisely wrong. The proper study of humankind starts with God. To know him is to know yourself. Wait a minute, you might say, (laughs) a lot of people seem to be pretty confident, a lot of clever people seem to be confident these days, that God doesn't exist 
or that the God question isn't worth giving any quality time to. And they seem to live more or less happily without any reference to God at all, busy with all the other things that humans do, working, raising families, going on holidays, cooking and eating food, giving to charity, watching Netflix, and, bonus, sleeping in on Sunday mornings. Contemporary life is very full after all. Now, of course, you'll be pleased to know that I won't, uh, this morning, give you a full account of the many reasons why you should believe there is a God. But I do just want to put some things on the table here in response to the existence question. The first of these is that we always need to ask which, which God people say they don't believe in. Why is this? Because very often contemporary atheists get the definition of God completely wrong. They decide they don't believe in a God that no one actually believes in. They disprove the existence of God who is more like a superhero than the God that most theists believe in, most believers of God actually believe in. It's interesting to me that the leading atheists these days are scientists, material scientists. The job of science, whether physics, chemistry or biology, is to understand the material world, the, the physical substance of the world, that we, the universe in which we live. Scientists are spectacularly unqualified, therefore, to analyse a being who is, almost all religions say, outside of the realm of time and space. Looking for empirical evidence for God is like trying to tune into the internet with a transistor radio and then saying the internet doesn't exist. So that's the first thing. The second thing is to say there is a remarkable consensus across cultures and religions and down the passage of human history about the existence of an eternal, invisible being who is the uncaused cause of all that is. The Greeks, the Jews, the Hindus, uh, the indigenous religions of many places in this world, the similarity is striking in what they say about the origins of all things. Even if they then add a raft of lesser gods into the picture, as a number of them do. Now, to be clear, there are huge differences about how we might as human beings relate to that being, but there is a very strong consensus amongst human humanity that such a being exists. Which leads me to the third thing, which is to note the common experience that many, many people have when we encounter the, the natural world of an overwhelming immensity that seems beyond the natural world. It's a feeling of awe. Not, not everyone experiences this, but some of us certainly have. Now, interestingly, my friend, the one who talked about the Vicar Waffle, was actually a submarine commander in the British Navy, a very practical and uh, to-the-point kind of man, as you can imagine. But he told me once of an experience of walking on the deck of his sub at dawn in the middle of the vast and empty sea, and of feeling at once the immensity of the sea, and yet also the presence of a bigger immensity than the sea. Fourth, there are a number of good arguments that show the reasonableness of belief in God. The best three, and there are a number of other ones too, but the best three are that everything physical must be caused by something else. So we need to have a point where this chain of causes began. That the, secondly, that the, the, the universe shows evidence of being designed 
And thirdly, that we live in a meaningful and moral universe, that we, we just have the hunch that this is an ordered and meaningful and moral place, that right and wrong are not simply inventions of our own minds. Now, that's a lot to take in all at once. But the bottom line is that we are right to suspect that there is a God. But how do we know him? How could we say anything meaningful about a being who is so incomprehensibly vast, so immeasurably powerful to have created the universe, so outside of time to have created a 14 and a half billion year universe, so hidden behind the black depths of the night sky? Do we know him to be cruel or to be kind? The novelist Thomas Hardy described God once as the dreaming dark thing that turns the handle of this idle show. And I wonder if you have that feeling sometimes that you aren't an atheist, but that you might as well be for all the difference it makes in terms of knowing the identity of this mysterious, distant being. We cannot fathom God. In fact, the Bible agrees with us on this this sense that God is beyond our comprehension. In Isaiah, God says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Tim read that at the beginning of the service. In John chapter 1, in verse 18, John says, No one has ever seen God. In his classic book, Knowing God, the English theologian J.I. Packer puts it this way, we cannot know him unless he speaks and tells us about himself. But then he goes on. But in fact, he has spoken. And this is crucial. We cannot understand God. We cannot fathom him. We cannot see him unaided. But God has not been silent. God has spoken. He has led us to the place where he has introduced himself to human beings. He has disclosed himself so that we might not just guess or speculate about him or know some things about him, but that, so that we might actually know him as he really is, know him personally as we know one another. And I can't tell you how vital this is for true Christianity. The Bible is not some record of a few speculations about God that some people had over the course of a couple of thousand years, ancient people at that. It's the account of God's true words about himself. It tells us the story of God's relationship with human beings. And in that story, he tells us who he is. We see his character as he acts with his people. We hear uh, the words that he speaks of himself. We hear him tell us his own name so that we might know him. The letter in the New Testament, the letter to the Hebrews, opens like this, with great words. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. I mean, that's a way of kind of summarizing the whole Old Testament, right? In the past, over that 3,000-year period, God spoke to our ancestors many times, various ways. But in these last days... He has spoken to us by his son. In these last times, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he's appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. The son, this one through whom God has spoken, is the radiance, I love this language, the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. 
He's the exact stamp of God's being, this one called the Son. We saw something of this in the John reading we had for us, the New Testament reading, where we see Jesus talking about the intimate relationship he has as the Son of God with the Father, that he and the Father know each other, that he knows him so well and reveals the Father to those who seek him, to his people. God reveals himself in the history of the people of Israel. It's the story that stretches from Abraham all the way through Moses and the Exodus to King David and the kings that followed him. It continues through the tragedy of the exile to Babylon and then the return to Israel after that. And in and around that history, we hear God's voice in the laws of Israel, which we've been looking at for the first, uh, first little bit of this year, in the songs of the psalmists and in the wisdom of the Proverbs and in the declarations of the prophets. But the history and the hope of Israel was all pointing to the coming of the Son, the coming of Jesus. God has spoken by his prophets, spoken his unchanging word, but now in this day, in our hearing, he has spoken to us by his Son. John puts it this way. Remember, John said, no one has ever seen God. But then he says, it is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. No one has ever seen God. You can't imagine him or think him up or contemplate him such that you could contain him or understand him. Who could do that? But God, the only son, close to the father's heart and intimate, has made him known. Paul will call Jesus the image of the invisible God. And when Hebrews says that the Son is the exact representation of God's being. The, the Greek word there is the same word used for the picture of the emperor's head that was on coins. You know how we still have the queen's head on our coins. It's like the, the picture. It's her picture. And he says, that, that is Jesus for you. The exact representation of God's being. The bottom line, if you want to know God, where do you look? You look at Jesus. If you have a hunch that God exists, don't go staring at sunsets. And it's a great thing to do. But don't make it up. Don't say things like, I like to think of God as. And don't give up. Come to meet him where he comes to meet you in Jesus, who represents him exactly as he is. So what does this mean in practical terms? Well, first of all, I hope it's not rude of me to repeat this, but the existence of the true God means that you aren't God and that God is. Now, some of you will know the story of Job, that he wrestled with God to give him an account of his suffering. And in the end, though, after a long wrestle, a kind of debate back and forth, God speaks to him and says, Hey, Job, did you put the earth on its foundations? Did you put the stars into space? Did you spin the planets on their axes and send them on their orbits around the sun? Did you make the crocodile or the ostrich? And the, this answer is strangely comforting to God, and he accepts it. You're not God, Job, and I am. And what God is saying here is, Job, I've got this. I've got this business of being God so that you don't have to. Now, most of us, would not actually think of ourselves as God. 
I mean, there are some people who, who may, but, but that's very rare that we would actually designate ourselves as divine, but we certainly do tend to act like it. And if there is no God, or if God is unknowably confusing and distant, then in the end I must act as if I am the centre of everything and the arbiter of good and evil, right? Because that's all you've got. The burden of meaning and wisdom lies on your puny shoulders. All you have is your own experience and your own judgment. But that you are not God is one of the most liberating truths of all. It's true freedom to know that the Lord God, He is God. And that I am one of His creatures. I don't have to make myself or find myself. I don't have to know everything. I don't have to decide what right and wrong are. I don't have to pretend that I am infinite and eternal because I'm not. I am fundamentally a dependent creature made by this extraordinary God. And this is the second thing. You are, to, you are made to know God and to be known by Him. You are not God, but you are made to know God and to be known by Him. You and I are God's special creations. We are made in His image for relationship with Him. And this God is not absent or silent or hidden beyond smoke behind smoke machines like the Wizard of Oz. He has, you might say, if it's not too crass to put it this way, swiped right on you. He knows you. And he's invited you to know him. Knowing this about yourself is like discovering the key that fits the lock. Packer writes in that book, Knowing God, once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. It's not that the problems go away, of course, but the problems gain their proper perspective. And that's the invitation that we have before us today and for the next few weeks. Not to simply know about God, but to seek to know him as he shows himself to us in Jesus. To listen to his voice as he speaks about himself and about you and to speak to him in your own voice. Maybe seeking to know God is a new idea for you. Or maybe it's an old idea that's got a little bit rusty. Perhaps you're out of practice. But take some small steps to begin or to begin again today. A few short words of prayer. A fragment of scripture maybe. Listening to his voice once more. For there is no greater comfort that anyone may discover, no deeper peace than to be on intimate terms with the infinite creator. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.